This morning, I'm continuing in my sermon series going through 1 Thessalonians, which is a letter in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul, one of the leaders of the early church, and he wrote it to a church in Thessalonica. Thank you, Taylor. He wrote it to a church in Thessalonica that he had started around the year 49 AD, and then he got driven out of town um, by a mob of angry Jews that were offended by him teaching that Jesus was God in human form. And so after a couple of years of trying to get back, and he couldn't get back, he sends Timothy, one of his co-workers, to go. And Timothy goes, learns all about the church, brings back information to Paul, and in response to everything he hears from Timothy, he sends this letter, 1 Thessalonians. And the first part of the letter, which we've already looked at, he reminds them of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. He reminds them of his love for them. Uh, And then he moves on in chapter 4 to deal with some specific questions, specific issues that are arising. He talks about sex, death, and work. We looked at sex. We looked at death the last couple weeks. Now, I'm sorry. We looked at sex and work. Now we're looking at death this morning. And we're going to look at it next week as well because there's a lot he brings up and a lot of questions that we'd have. So what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 5, 11. And then we're going to look at what it is that Paul has to say in this passage about death, the return of Jesus, and our hope as Christians. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. Let me pray before we continue. Father, we ask that you would open our ears to hear what this means and open our hearts to understand this and to apply it to our lives. We need you by your Holy Spirit to apply this, Lord, and help us to make sense of this. And so we pray that you would minister to us this morning and reveal yourself more and more to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, remember, this is not a letter that was dropped out of the sky to 21st century America. 
This was a letter that was written by Paul to a church that he had started dealing with some questions that arose. And so often when you're reading the, the letters of the New Testament, it's helpful to read between the lines and try to understand, like, what questions is he answering here, right? So as I understand it, as I read this passage, it seems like there's two questions uh, that he seems to be addressing. The first is, what will happen to my believing loved ones when they die? And then secondly, how should we be preparing for the day of judgment? We're going to save the second question for next week, the second part of this passage that I read for next week about judgment. And I want to focus a little bit more on this first question because it seems like they were wondering, my, my loved ones who have died, Jesus has not returned yet. My loved ones are dead. Where are they? What's going to happen? Will they miss out on, on Jesus' return? They wanted to understand what would happen to their loved ones when they died. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. And look again at verses 13 of eight and 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4. He begins by saying, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. And then he explains, and then he ends by saying, therefore, encourage each other with these words. He doesn't want them to be ignorant. He doesn't want them to be in the dark because when it comes to death, if you're just in the dark and not understanding and wondering, there's going to be a lot of anxiety. There's going to be a lot of fear. And instead, he says, let me explain to you what happens to your believing loved ones when they die. And by the end, he says, encourage each other with that. Encourage. There's a lot of peace that comes, a lot of courage that comes from knowing the truth about death. So my hope this morning is that I will be able to do the same, right? That as we talk about death and what happens to our believing loved ones when they die, that there would be encouragement, there'd be peace in our anxiety, that confusion would be cleared up with clarity. So three things in particular from this passage that I believe he wants us to know about death, Jesus' return, and the Christian hope. The first is this, that death is an enemy. Death is an enemy. He begins again, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, he doesn't tell them not to grieve. He doesn't tell them, like, hey, it's okay, you know, death is just a part of life. Someone dies, that's okay, don't worry about it, just move on. He says it's okay to grieve, but he says, I don't want you to grieve like people who have no hope. So we hold those two together. We grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope, he says. The implication is that grief is very appropriate when someone dies. In fact, Jesus at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, wept. It says, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. You may know that's the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35 there. Jesus wept. But here you have Jesus, and in the original Greek, that moved in spirit and troubled is an angry sort of moved in spirit. At the tomb of his friend Lazarus, watching his friends and his loved ones crying and mourning and broken over the death of their loved one. He weeps alongside them. He's angry at the tomb. He's angry at death. Because that's not the way it was meant to be. That when God created us and created us good in his good creation, there was not meant to be death. But because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve against God, there was the fall into sin and brokenness and death entered this world. But make no mistake, death is an enemy. It is an intrusion into God's good world. Even 1 Corinthians 15, 26, Paul writes, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
So right there, he says, death is an enemy, and it will be destroyed. But right now, whenever someone dies, it doesn't feel natural, does it? It does not feel right. It does not feel like, well, it's just a natural part of life, right? We all live and die, and then we become fertilizer, or we go back into the ground, or whatever. Like, it's, there's something in us that rebels against that. There's something in us that just, when someone dies, it feels wrong. It feels like an enemy and intrusion. And that is because it is. It's not a natural part of life. It was not meant to be this way. Jesus, even at the tomb of his friends, wept and was angry at death. It's not meant to be that way. Death is an enemy. It's the first thing you need to know. Some of you are too young maybe to understand this, but death is going to come for everyone. That as you age, eventually death takes every single person that you love, and then eventually it will take you and will separate you from the ones you love. Death is an enemy. But, praise God, we don't end this sermon after point number one. The second is this. Jesus overcame death by his death and resurrection. Hallelujah. That death does not have the final say. Death is an enemy. It is an intruder. But it does not have the final say. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4.14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Notice the language that they use there for death. Fallen asleep. I mean, when we go to bed at night, you know, we're not panicking usually, most of us. You know, it's, it's, we go to sleep. It's peaceful. And then we wake up in the morning. And the Christian way of viewing death became this. They, they just called it falling asleep. You're falling asleep, you're waking up in the presence of God. The Christian understanding was that it was like your body fell asleep and rested in the ground while your soul went to be with the Lord until eventually there would be a resurrection of the body and soul. But that's all it was. In fact, the word cemetery, did you know that the word cemetery means sleeping place? It's not the place of the dead. It's a place of sleep. That's where a cemetery comes from, the, na- the name. It's just to be a place where the bodies sleep in waiting for the resurrection of the body. So death is an enemy, but death is a defeated enemy. Hebrews chapter 2 The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. What a beautiful passage. If you've ever been afraid of death, if you've ever looked and panicked about it, this passage is just beautiful. Saying Jesus took on flesh and blood, died in our place to free us from the devil, to free us from fear of death. So that instead of being something to fear, we can know that it's falling asleep, waking up in the presence of God. The word that's used in this passage is the word champion, which... Uh, if you're not familiar with that word, you think of David and Goliath and how David fought on behalf of the Israelites as their champion. And so his victory over Goliath was applied to all the people, even though they never lifted a finger to fight Goliath. That's what the champion is. And here it says Jesus is that champion for us, that he defeated death by rising again. He defeated the devil. And so we receive that victory, even though we did nothing to earn that. 
his victory becomes our victory over death, over the devil. And so Paul can write this in Romans 6. Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our sin separated us from a holy God, just like Adam and Eve's sin. And we have every reason to fear death until Jesus came. And he conquered death as our champion. And now, it says the gift of God is eternal life. Not something we earned, but something we've been given. The gift of God is eternal life. So death is an enemy. Make no mistake. When you're angry and hurt and broken over the death of someone you love, it's not wrong. It's right to feel that way. Even Jesus felt that way. It's right to feel that way because death is an enemy. It's an intruder into God's perfect world. But death is a defeated enemy. That Jesus overcame death by his life and resurrection. And so the main message of 1 Thessalonians 4 that Paul wants to communicate is this. That we will be with God forever. That their concern over their loved ones who have died and where are they and what does this mean Paul wants to encourage them with the language he uses that they're with God forever. Go back to verses 15 to 17. He says, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So remember, he's writing this letter to an audience, to a congregation of people who are concerned about the death of their loved ones. Especially wondering if they're going to miss out on Jesus' return. Because remember when Jesus ascended to heaven in Acts 1, this was the scene. After Jesus said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. So the disciples are gathered here, and Jesus ascends to heaven after his resurrection, and they're looking up into the sky, and these angels appear and tell them, why are you looking up into the sky? Jesus, who just ascended in this cloud, will return one day the same way that he ascended. And so you can imagine the disciples were like, when's this going to happen? You know, next week, next month, next year? They're waiting for Jesus to come back because he didn't give a timetable. He just said he's going to return the same way he left. And you can imagine every time there's a cloud, they're looking up at the sky, wondering if Jesus is in that cloud coming back. And so as they watch some friends die, they're curious and wondering, well, what happens to them? Because Jesus is supposed to come back, right? And now my friends have died, and what does this mean? So Paul encourages them to trust that those who have died in Christ will rise with Christ. They're not lost. They will be with God forever. So what happens to our believing loved ones when they die? I'm speaking to things beyond my knowledge, of course, because I have not been to heaven. But my understanding as I read the Bible is that those who die, again, at first there's a separation of soul and body, that the body lays in the grave, the cemetery, the place of sleep, while the soul goes to be with the Lord. In John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. In this context, the disciples were worried because Jesus had said he was going away. And they're like, where are you going? Where are you going? Can we come with you? He says, don't worry. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will come back and bring you to be with me. So you will be with me forever. Remember the thief on the cross, too. Jesus is there, and the one thief is, you know, cursing Jesus, and the other one confesses faith in Jesus. And he says this to that thief. He says, I tell you the truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And that word paradise refers to this blissful garden of rest and tranquility where the dead are refreshed as they wait for the dawn of the new day. So again, my understanding is that what happens first is that our bodies and souls are separated, that our bodies lay in the grave, that our souls ascend to be with the Lord, that he comes and takes us to be with him in heaven. But that's not the end of the story. We don't end the story separated soul and body, but there is a resurrection. Again, it says, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Again, I don't usually get into like the Greek and the Hebrew. This is originally written in Greek and Old Testament and Hebrew. I don't usually like throw out Greek and Hebrew terms, but there are a few in this passage that are very important. Um, One word you may be familiar with is that word caught up, harpazo. The Latin translate rapio was where we get this term, the rapture from, comes from this passage, to be violently snatched away. The coming of the Lord is the word parousia, which refers in those days to the glorious coming of a deity or the official visit of a sovereign to a city. So it was this event of great celebration. And Paul co-ops that word and uses it to talk about what's going to happen when Jesus returns, the parousia, his appearance. This will be this time of great celebration. And then that phrase, to meet, that we will meet the Lord in the air, is this word, ace apantesin, which is a technical term, which refers to the sending a delegation outside of the city to receive a dignitary or conquering king and join the procession back to the city. So Paul, again, is like using these terms that his audience was familiar with to paint a picture that what's going to happen when Jesus returns. That it'll be like this coming, this glorious coming of a deity or a, or a dignitary, and the people go out to meet him and bring him back with celebration. Example of this in Acts 28, where Paul says, There we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there had heard we were coming, so they traveled as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. And when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard them. This was an example of what I'm talking about here, where they go out, Paul's coming. So they go outside of the city to meet Paul and bring him back in this celebration here. My understanding, as I read this passage is that this is meant to encourage us that we will be with God forever, first and foremost, that those who have died before us are in paradise with the Lord, soul and body separated. But on that day when Christ returns, it says, we'll be caught up to meet the Lord like this delegation going out to meet him, that soul and body will be reunited, that we will bring the Lord, we will come back with the Lord to this earth, to this renewed heaven and earth. 
Revelation 21, 1 to 5 gives us a picture of this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He, was seated, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So in the end, heaven and earth are one. That this earth is recreated to be heaven and earth, God and humans together forever, that we will live with him. Anthony Hockema put it this way. He said, the new Jerusalem does not remain in a heaven far off in space, but it comes down to the renewed earth. And there the redeemed will spend eternity in resurrection bodies. So heaven and earth now separated will then be merged. The new earth will also be heaven, since God will dwell there with his people. Glorified believers, in other words, will continue to be in heaven while they are inhabiting the new earth. Makes sense, right? No eye has seen, no, you know, we, we have no idea, right? But you can understand and imagine what we're talking about here, that we will be with the Lord forever. On this renewed earth, heaven and earth are merged into one. Again, please know, Paul's purpose in this passage is to encourage the believers that their loved ones who have died will be with the Lord forever. His focus is not to try to lay out specifics of how that's all going to happen. And some of you know that this passage has been used to create a whole doctrine known as the rapture. Some of you are familiar, some of you might not know what that is, but that's this belief that believers are going to be snatched up to heaven, you know, that all of a sudden there's going to be like trucks that are, have no person in them and planes and you know, things going crazy, and believers have ascended to heaven and to escape the wrath to come. It's a view that was popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible in 1909, which is one of the first study Bibles ever created. It was popularized in recent years by the late great planet Earth and Left Behind series. Personally, I don't believe in the rapture. I don't believe that's a biblical doctrine. Personally, I don't think that's what this teaches at all. That again, it's a technical term that teaches we're going out to bring the Lord down here, not that we're going up there and we're going to be separated in some way. However, I could be wrong, and I don't really care about the details of all of that because the main point is that we will be with the Lord forever, however it happens. The whole point of this is to encourage you that we will be with the Lord forever. There's this passage that comes to mind when I talk about this in Titus 3.9. No, that's the Left Behind movie. Titus 3.9 uh, Paul writes this, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. My experience has been the more you get into the weeds of end time stuff, the more this applies. Jesus is returning. We will be with the Lord forever. The details of that, he will figure out. So I encourage you, again, focus on the main part. He's not worried about when it's going to happen either. You see that in chapter 5. He says this, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. What's Paul saying here? He's saying it's futile to try to predict when Jesus will return. Don't bother, he says. It's going to come like a thief in the night. You're not going to be prepared. Like labor pains on a pregnant woman. 
Jesus said a similar thing in Matthew 24. He said, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour. You do not expect him. So we come, we, we always live in anticipation that Christ could return any time. But we also don't try to set dates and figure out the details of it all. And I know some of you look at the times and you're like, there's war in Israel. What does that mean, right? Just Christ will return when Christ will return. Your job is to just keep your eyes on Jesus. There's been plenty of people throughout the years who have tried to predict the coming of the world. I remember I became a believer in 1994, and then I discovered Majesty Bibles and Books shortly thereafter in Manchester. And I remember on the clearance shelf was this book by Harold Camping, 1994, question mark? And it was a book trying to lay out his argument that Jesus was going to return in 1994. And that was being sold for about $1.50 on the clearance rack. And some of you remember the name Harold Camping because he predicted again in 2011, right? He miscalculated, so he tried again in 2011. The Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, predicted the end of the world in 1914, 1915, 1918, 1920, 1925, 1941, Again, encourage you. Death is an enemy. Jesus overcame death by his death and resurrection. So all who trust in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And we will be with God forever. And I want to just lay out a couple things of why this matters and what this means. That first of all, evil is going to be destroyed. Amen. Everything will be perfected. When he returns, evil will be destroyed. Everything will be protected. There's a whole bunch of words that start with R-E in the New Testament to talk about this. And I'm going to run through quickly some of these passages. Romans 8, 19 to 23 gives us revealed revelation and redemption. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Anyone wake up and groan this morning? This is saying we eagerly await for that day when everything will be redeemed, when the new creation will be revealed. And then he goes on to talk about reconciliation. He says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Revelation, redemption, reconciliation, restoration, Acts 3, 19 to 21. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. And the last one, renewal. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What, would, what then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. All these rewords, right? It's going to be restored and renewed and everything will be new. And we will dwell with God forever on this new heavens and new earth. 
that's why the whole idea of like having a bucket list, you know, and like you only live once and all of that. I just think you don't have to. That's a that's a worldly way of thinking about life, right? I mean, we are going to dwell forever on a renewed heavens and earth, and I don't know what that's going to be like. But my sense is, if I never make it to Hawaii before I die, I'm sure Hawaii, you know, in this present earth is going to be like Bridgeport, you know. And the way, no offense, Bridgeport, but you understand what I'm saying, right? Like, it's all going to be Hawaii. It's, it's going to be more beautiful than we could ever imagine. We will dwell with the Lord here forever. And if you've been paying attention to the Bible, you know this is a theme that you can trace from the beginning. In the beginning, God dwelt with Adam and Eve and walked with them in the cool of the day. And then we lost that fellowship with God. But then with Moses, he had them create this tabernacle where he would dwell in their midst. And then when they dwelt in the, when they moved into the land of Israel, they created a temple where God would dwell in their midst. And then came Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God in the midst of his people. And then after Jesus ascended, he gave his Holy Spirit to be God's present in, presence in us. And now the story ends with God dwelling with us forever. This was the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, right? You want to pray this with me? Our Father? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Notice there he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. And that prayer will be answered. That prayer will be answered, as it says in Revelation 11. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and begun to reign Handel's Messiah right there, right? The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's what we have to look forward to. We will be with God. We will have the perfect community we've longed for, the perfect occupation, the perfect relationships, the perfect love, the perfect peace, the perfect joy forever and ever. Let these words encourage you. Death is an enemy, and it is right to cry, and it is right to be angry when someone dies. But death is a defeated enemy, and all who trust in Jesus will be with the Lord forever. Let me close with the words of J.I. Packer. He said, Hearts on earth may say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this ever to end, but invariably it does. The hearts of those in heaven say, I want this to go on forever, and it will. There's no better news than this. Let me pray while the worship team comes forward. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, that you have defeated death. Thank you, Lord, that we can grieve not as those who have no hope, but that we can have hope for life eternal because of Jesus, our champion, who destroyed death and Satan. 
and has made a way for us to have eternal life. We have no idea. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, no mind can comprehend what it will be like on that day. But we look forward, Lord, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And we trust in you and we thank you, Lord, for the eternal life that you offer us in Jesus Christ. Amen.